Good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End from this, uh, what is it, July 5th already, man. Good to be with you here today. Looking forward to uh, having a good program with you this morning. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Hope you had a good uh, uh, Independence Day weekend. Uh, my family and I spent some time uh, on the beach there together um, and uh, had a good, had some good, uh, just a relaxing day and uh Watched some fireworks and did all that stuff you do at night. So uh, we had a good day, a good weekend, um, and so on. But before we get too deep into this today, first of all, I need to, like, to make sure y'all can hear me, all that kind of stuff, because as you can see, this is a new setup. Welcome to my office. I now have an office. <laughs> I don't have anything on the shelves yet, but I have an office, so... Uh, there you go. So uh, make sure it's coming in okay and y'all can hear me. I'm not getting, you know, uh, everything. I've unplugged everything, got a new camera, got all kind of stuff going on here. So a little nervous about how it's going to work. We'll see through this um, through this first stream. But yeah, started the new work at Rockledge. Um, now I've got to retrain myself. The camera is now no longer here. The camera is now over here. I'm going to have to train myself to look over here. The problem is all my monitors are over there on the right-hand side. A uh, little vibration, okay. Um, yeah, that may be something i got to work on, Travis. Um, i got a lot of hard surfaces in here, man. i got got a wood desk. Oh, I'm running a pretty high noise gate and also some pretty high compression on this thing just because it's really echoey in here. And i got wood surfaces everywhere. Either the roller my chair is on is hard. So I'm going to get, get a lot of background noise. So we hear it like clipping in and out. Uh, that may be the, I've got the noise gate set a little high, a little echo. I see that's my problem. Uh, one thing I got to do is get a, a microphone stand. My microphone is still, I didn't, I didn't have room in my, in the condo for the, for a microphone stand. I just didn't have a good way to set it up, but I need to get a microphone holder to get that, get the microphone up off the, the uh, wood tabletop that it's on. So, as long as I'm dealing with these hard surfaces, I'm going to have a little bit of it. Um, and anytime I touch the tabletop or reach over here to the back desk or something, it, it's going to it's going to echo a little bit. Uh, and I'm staring right at a, a wood panel wall. Uh, it's it's not it's not good in terms of sound. Maybe getting some when I get some books and stuff on those bookcases because I got wood on that side of the wall. I'm gonna have a lot of a uh, lot of noise in here for a little while. I'll work on it. But uh, we'll see. But um, anyway, at least it's up and running and the, the stream is going well. Um, and um, anyway, let me stop. Start start your count. There, there was an um. Start your count on the ums. But the uh, yeah, I think the lighting is a little bit better, Travis, as well. I've got I've got more room so I can spread out the lights and get it a little bit more diffused. Uh, part of that's also the camera. Um, Camera's got a much better lens on it. It's instead of a little webcam, I've actually got a, a mirrorless camera with a good prime lens on it, which allows me to run a, low, a lot lower um, uh, f-stop. For those who know, I got f-stops down to about 1.4, which is a really low number, which allows it, it still uh, allows for a pretty low ISO setting. So it's a lot better camera setup than I had before. And part of that is I've got more room to play with so the, the new camera actually helps, and so all of that. So, um, Travis, a lot of it has to do with camera. I don't know what kind of camera you're using, but if you're having trouble getting the, the lighting right, cameras cameras just about everything. I mean, I, I I'm loving my loving my new camera. I could turn the lights off in here and still have a very usable image. It's 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 amazing. 
Uh, so anyway, but that's not what y'all came here to talk about today. So this is from the deep end. Uh, we did in the first hour of the program. We sit around and we just talk about the Bible a little bit, whatever Bible questions you have on tap. I just had a thought. I thought maybe there was something left on the table from last week. And I wasn't here um, Monday. I think maybe there was something left on the table from Friday. But if there was, I don't remember what it is. But uh, any, any Bible questions you have, you want to put them in, feel free to do that. And we will get to your Bible questions and comments here in just a few moments. Second hour of the program, we will have a, a study or continue our study of, no, that's right, because we went long on Thursday. I didn't actually get to First Peter Thursday. Man, that feels like three weeks ago. Uh, so we actually spent some time talking about uh, prayer at some length, if I remember correctly now. Now things are coming back to me. Been a, been a busy weekend trying to get moved into a new new work, starting a new work. I haven't really, frankly, haven't thought about digital Bible study much over the weekend. Um, so, oh, uh, Jonathan, I see you're out there in the, in the comment section, Jonathan. I saw your messages, but I did not get to them yet. I will get you unblocked. <laughs> that's just, we did not mean to block you from from the Facebook stuff and all that. I will, uh, uh, I will get you unblocked at some point today. Uh, if I have it by the time we get on the stream tonight, let me know because uh, I have I have been known to forget things. Like every minute of my day, I've been known to forget things. So we um, will be having a connect tonight. Uh, supposed to be David Sproul, but David had something come up over the weekend and messaged me. Uh, overnight Sunday night yesterday saying he can't make it. So I'm not sure who is going to be on tonight. That is um, that is yet to be determined. That happens occasionally. Uh, I have a few people that uh, I can call on last minute to do without any problem, but one of them is my dad and my mom is still recovering from surgery. By the way, she is, so, sounds like the surgery went well. So, um, uh, but she's still having a lot of pain. Um, I think she's uh, getting a little ornery from what I hear about getting some of the rehab and all that done, getting back up and moving. You know how they get try to get you moving again just as soon as the uh, when, as soon as the the uh, surgery is over, they want to get you moving. And I, I don't know that she's been the most cooperative patient from what I've heard. I think she's supposed to be released either Wednesday or Thursday. Um, so it, it seems like it went well, but she's having, still having a lot of pain. So if you keep my mom and your prayers. Uh, that would be that would be amazing, and uh, we would appreciate it greatly. So, uh, so there goes one of my last minute guys. Is my dad, uh, Charles Abernathy, is one of my other last minute guys. I have I may give Charles a shout to this this morning, but I saw pictures from him yesterday and on Facebook, and I think he was with his grandkids. And his grandkids do not live in the state of Texas, so Charles. Um, he's either on vacation or maybe on the road coming back. So I don't know that I'm going to be able to get Charles for tonight. So somebody, somebody will be here tonight for Connect. I'm not sure who that's going to be just yet. I'll get David rescheduled here in the uh, in the near future. So having said all that, oh, don't forget, it is Tuesday. This is going to mess me up. It is Tuesday. I am hopeful that the Truth Tuesday show will be back on uh, today. They have been off for a couple of weeks with Daryl having some issues. But uh, Daryl messaged me over the weekend. I still need to get back to Daryl with a couple things. But at least he was up and messaging. So that gives me hope that they will be on with us at 10 o'clock today. Uh, it is Tuesday, so do not forget then that we have Christianity Now that comes up at 11 with Tony Brewer and Aaron Dodson. And then just as I mentioned, I have to get a uh, fill-in for tonight on the uh, on the stream. As I sit here and I think, I see Jonathan Exum in the room. Hey, Jonathan Exum, Mr. Preacher Man. 
you want to do connect tonight, let me know because I'm looking for somebody and you're right there in the room right now. So if you're available, just give me a shout right here in the comment section and we'll get you scheduled for tonight because that would solve my problem. There we go. Down to the next one. It's going to be on connect tonight. That'll be great. Everybody tune in. Our good friend, part of the family here at Digital Bible Study. Jonathan, Jonathan Exxon will be on Connect tonight. Send me a sermon title, buddy, just as soon as you can, and I'll get the room set up and get you scheduled in for tonight. That is awesome. There you go. Um, but let's go ahead and get started on the uh, we've already spent 10, 12 minutes doing all the um, intro stuff. Let's go ahead and get started on the comment section here. Saw a couple of questions come in a minute ago. Uh, see what I have here. Let me scroll back up. I didn't get those pinned, so I have to go scroll back up and find them. Um, I think I went too far. I went too far. Uh, well, Jonathan just said that he listened to the sermon from Sunday. Uh, always tough, man, to do a, a first sermon at a new at a new work. It was really weird for me to this Sunday yesterday doing the new work. Um, just because I've already been a member of the church here for three three and a half years, and you know, usually when you do that first sermon at a, at a new work, it's like it's all new, right? So this was new, but not new. So that was that was actually a, the, one of the weirder sermons I've had to preach in my preaching career. It just didn't feel it didn't feel exactly right. But um, it, I think it was well enough received. And I appreciate your comments on that, um, Jonathan, on that as well. So appreciate that you, you took your time out to listen to it. Um, and uh, I see you're going to be talking about you need to th talk about do we need a revival? I, I, you know that that's a topic that is I think near and dear to the heart of a lot of people these days. I think the answer people mostly would give would be yes, we do. Um, and so one of the things I talked about in that sermon is that we, we've had a couple of hard years, especially here at Rockledge. The reason I'm in this office today is that its previous occupant that had been here for 28 years, you know, passed away from COVID. As, as I think all of y'all know by now, his name was Kerry Berkey. Um, and did an outstanding job here at Rockledge. I've been here for 28 years. Um, a lot of strength, a lot of Bible knowledge in this church, and a lot of that goes directly to um, to his work over the last three decades. Um but when you lose your preacher, and then and I think we're down probably from 150 down to about 100. So, you know, about 50% of the so of the membership is at least no longer actively attending. Uh, there's a lot of discouragement that can build up. And I think there's probably a lot of that in churches. Um, and it's easy to look to the past. And if you start looking to the past, one of the churches I referenced in that sermon was the Church of Sardis. Uh, you know, Church of Sardis, is the, the Jesus says about that church, you have a name, but you are dead. And I don't think these are quite that <laughs> dire here at Rockledge. It's not dead, but it's certainly not from from all the visible standpoints. It's not what it was. Uh, and sometimes I think we can get caught up in looking backwards, trying to fix the things that, you know, trying to reclaim what we had in the past or trying to add new stuff on. And, and you kind of overwhelm the core of people that you've got left. You know, you have fewer people to do the same number of jobs, basically. And if you start then trying to add a whole bunch of new stuff, all you're going to do is burn out the people that you got. And one of the points I made, and it's to me, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but the longer I've preached, the more I think it's true. A lot of times when you get into the situation, people come up with this idea that what we need to do is get the church to be evangelistic again. And certainly the church needs to be evangelistic, right? But you have fewer people. And truth be told, evangelism is one of the hardest things to do because it's it's so often not successful. You set, set the church out door knocking. You're going to knock on a bunch of doors, and you're going to get a whole bunch of no's before you get a yes. 
you have fewer workers to start with, you start doing things that are, are needed, but they take up a lot of energy, they take up a lot of time, and they're also, there are points of great encouragement between, but between the points of great encouragement, there's a lot of discouragement, a lot of hardness that you have to go through. I think that's why Jesus tells the church in, in Sardis, you have a few in Sardis that have not yet spoiled your garments. Or soiled your garments, I think, is the King James rendering of it. And what he says to them is, you need to strengthen those things that remain. And my personal opinion is that we need to strengthen the things that remain in our churches. We don't need to spend the next two, three, four years trying to reclaim all the members that have gone away. They've gone. Now, this is not an either or. We need to reclaim those people. But this is a both and. We need to focus on the people that have stayed and strengthen and lift up their hands while at the same time not forgetting the people that have gone. So it's a both and. But I think the danger I think a lot of churches are going to face is they're going to spend so much time focusing on trying to reclaim those people and restore those relationships and the people that remain are going to be the ones doing that. And I don't know that that's going to be an easy work. And instead of encouraging and strengthening the people that remain, we're going to end up discouraging them by spending so much time over, you know, working fields that have already been plowed and planted and, and harvested. My message to the church at Rockland Sunday was, listen, there's still some good things here. We still got good people here. A lot of strength here. There's hope here. Let's strengthen those things that remain and get the, and get the get the get what we are energized again, and that'll make it more attractive to to, to other people as well. So that was the basic message of it. So anyway, uh, appreciate you taking time to watch that, Jonathan. I do appreciate that, especially from coming from another preacher. That's always a, always a beneficial thing and and a, and, a, and a, an encouraging thing to know that other guys are out there listening to you. Give me just one second here. I'm still playing with my setup. I need to I need to do something real quick. It's gonna make some noise, I think. But give me just a second. All right, I don't know if that make any difference or not, but I, my, my microphone is directional. And I realized my microphone was sitting over there and I'm talking over here. That's not that's not a good I, not, not a good thing. You need to get that microphone closer to you. It's still too far away for a good set, sound setup, but at least it's facing the basic direction that I'm trying to talk now. Um, all right, let's see what we had out here. I had another one. I saw a question fall from Ronald. I think um, there was one before Ronald put one in. Let me see. Johnny, there it is. I knew I had one there from Johnny uh, or from somebody who didn't remember from Johnny. But um, uh, Johnny asks, can you forgive a person if they don't ask? Um, we've actually talked about that. I think we talked about that once, once Thursday when my dad was on. I think somebody asked a similar question to that. And it's a little bit of a difficult question to answer just because the concept can be difficult to communicate. But there, there are really two parts when it comes to forgiveness. There is the spirit, the heart of the person who has been offended. And then there is obviously the spirit and the heart of the person who has done the offense. Now let's make sure before we, before we get too deep into that, that we are properly defining what the offense is. An offense is not somebody who hurt my feelings. So, you know, for example, I don't know, you come into to worship on Sunday 
and you're sitting in the pew and somebody walks right by you and doesn't stop, take a second to say hello and shake your hand and they go sit down in their seat. And you sit there and think, well, why did that person talk to me? They offended me. Okay. That's not, that's on you, not them. Uh, they have no obli- more obligation to talk to you than you do to talk to them. Um, they didn't sin against you. They may have hurt your feelings, but you don't know what's going on in their mind. Uh, maybe they were distracted or maybe the preacher's walking in and he's thinking about his lesson for Sunday. And Sunday morning is one of the worst times for, for me in terms of actually seeing people because I've got 17 things on my mind. People coming up and talking to me. I've got, I'm obviously I'm about to preach. I've got things going through my brain and, and all the, all the, even some of the nuts and bolts about getting the microphone, getting hooked up, uh, you know, getting, getting your notes organized, getting everything together. So you got to the pulpit, just all the little nuts and bolts things that you got to do on Sunday. You don't know. You don't know what's going on with the other person. They didn't, they didn't sin against you. Um, you want, if you want somebody to talk to you and they haven't, I got a great idea. Why don't you go up and talk to them? Okay. That's how you solve that problem. So that, that's not what we're talking about in terms of being able to have to forgive somebody. Sin is what needs to be forgiven. All right. Um, so that, that, that's, that's an objective standard. That's not my standard. You know, my standard of who ought to speak to me, who ought not speak to me, who ought to hug me and all that kind of stuff. That's my standard. My preference is my opinion. That's not Bible. Sin is Bible. That's God's opinion. And God's opinion is truth. All right. So let's start there. But then you have to deal with both parties, the spirit of the person who has been sinned against and the person who has done the sin. One thing that's clear from Scripture is the person who has been sinned against needs to have from start to finish a forgiving spirit within them. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5. That's the, that's the mentality. Okay, just because somebody has not yet repented doesn't mean that we are allowed to have harmful and hurtful feelings toward that other person. We ought to be of a spirit ready to forgive, one offering forgiveness Hey, brother, you, you sinned against me, and I, 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 I want to make this right with us. Just come, let's sit down and talk about it. And that's why in Matthew chapter 18, the onus is at least partially put on the person that has been sinned against. If your brother trespasses against you, go to him. Because sometimes somebody may have sinned and not realized that their sin has had any impact on you whatsoever. If you don't go to that person, you don't give them the opportunity to, to, to repent. So the person who has been sinned against is never excused from having a forgiving spirit. So that doesn't change, Johnny. Now, the other side of that coin is the person who has done the sin has an obligation to repent. Can't, can't not repent. Must always repent of the wrong that they have done. 100% all the time if they're going to get forgiveness. And so that's why in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother has trespassed against you, go to him. And if he repent, that's a key part of the phrase, if he repents, you forgive him and you have gained a brother. So he has the obligation to repent. And those obligations are 100% equal. Now, can you forgive him if he doesn't ask? You can do as Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay, but in that moment, those people were not forgiven. 
You can pray for their forgiveness. You can express, I want to forgive you. Or you can even say to that individual, if, if you care to phrase it this way, hey, you've done me wrong, but I don't hold, I, I forgive you. I don't hold you any ill will against you. You can certainly do that and you would be in your right to do so. That's exactly what Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Question, when were those people actually forgiven? You see, those the, the, they, they weren't actually forgiven until Acts chapter 2, when Peter says, you took him, and by wicked hands, you, you, you crucified the Son of God. When they heard this, they were pricked in the heart, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, or the forgiveness of your sins. They weren't forgiven for another 40 days or so until, closer to 50 days, until they they gladly received the word of the apostles, Peter being the, the spokesman on that day, and they were, they were baptized, and the Lord added unto them that day 3,000 souls. That's verse 40 down to about verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. So, you know, in the absolute sense, Johnny, we can't forgive anybody. Okay, even if... Even if that brother comes and repents to you and says, hey, you know, and, and we make it right between us, guess what? If that brother or sister has sinned against you, guess who they've also sinned against? They've sinned against God. And if they're actually in the absolute sense going to receive forgiveness for that sin, guess who they must repent before? They must repent before God. There are a lot of people that are out in the world that sin against each other. And, and, and they sin against each other in a marriage or, or whatever other relationship, whatever other encounter they have, and, and, and they repent to each other and they forgive one another. Guess what? But guess what has not happened? Just because you're not a child of God, child of God doesn't mean your sin is not sin. Your sin is always sin. But if you haven't repented before God, it doesn't matter that we've forgiven each other. You haven't gotten that for secured that forgiveness before God, you got a problem. So can you? Yeah, you can. But until repentance is, is, has reaped its fullness, repentance among each other and repentance between the, the person who has sinned and God, until both of those avenues are secured, there's actually no for forgiveness in the absolute sense given. So it's, it's a little bit more complex question than maybe it appears on the surface. But um, uh, th that would be my answer to it. So uh, I'm going to go, go for there for that. Um, let's see what we have here from Ronald. Um, when do the practices of Sunday night uh, and Wednesday night services begin? Um, I don't know exactly. I've heard different origin stories from them. Um, you know, obviously some of the um, some of the origin stories come from um, uh you know, depression era, war, war era type things. Um, you know, we had some more rural settings. Other people have some some other ideas about it. I am not exactly sure. Let me just say that. Um, but you know, it's it's it it must have been needful at, at some point. Obviously, it's not specifically um, directed in scripture anywhere that that other than coming together on the first day of the week, you have to meet at all. Um, there are certainly biblical examples of churches spending a lot more time together than they just did on the Sunday morning service. Um, and I'm not even certain they necessarily had Sunday morning 
services. We assume that, you know, Sunday night, well, Sunday night's never talked about in the Bible. Well, technically, Sunday morning is never even talked about in the Bible. Uh, the saints in Acts chapter 20 in Troas came together upon the first day of the week to break bread. And when you have the first day of the week and breaking bread put together, I'm going to assume that's the Sunday morning assembly. And then Paul continued his speech until midnight. Now, we often talk about that, but you know what's not there in the text? What's not there on the text, or there in the text, is the um, time at which he started that sermon. Um, so I don't, I, I, you know, he may have started that in the evening upon the first day of the week. Um, now, you know, and they began their first day of the week, at least from a Jewish standpoint, the, their first day of the week uh, from, from you know, when, when, when they when they give the times of the days, we start our days at midnight or sometimes we consider it maybe, you know, sunrise. Their days actually started in the evening. And that's one reason that when as Moses is writing the book of Genesis and he writes out the days of the creation, he says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. We would say it the other way around. We would say in the morning and the evening were the first day. So they counted their, the start of their days a little differently than, than we do. Uh, and that may have had an impact on the, the actual hour of the day in which they started their services. I don't know that it did. I, there may be some historical documents out there that, you know, nine o'clock Eastern time is the, is the acceptable time. <laughs> That's funny, Travis. That's exactly what I was just saying. <laughs> uh, just, just right as you put that in, you know, there may be uh, uh, the, the nine o'clock uh, Eastern time is the scriptural time to start worship service. And if you do, do it any other time, you're doing wrong. Uh, but but to, to answer your question, I wish I wish I had a better answer for you on that, Ronald. I don't know exactly. Um, like I said, I, I've heard I've heard people uh, assert that it began, uh, you know, back in the Depression era. I've heard it asserted that uh, that it uh, it was a, a World War II thing um, when um, you know obviously a lot of men were away and um, the, the the hours of of people's employment were different and then obviously transportation and getting some gas rationing and all of that became more difficult i've heard all kind of stories if there's a definitive answer out there i don't know it um but um i wish i had a better answer for you but as i say on these bible questions um sometimes i don't know is the best answer that i can give you and i i, I don't know specifically the the answer uh, uh, to that uh, to that question. So, let's see what else we have here. Um, let's see what we have here. Um, um, the cherry, I guess, responding to what we were talking about earlier at the beginning, says our attendance is down here too. Uh, during our two separate meeting times during 2020, we, it was around 100, uh, now down to 75 or uh, 80. And in terms of a percentage loss, that's um, that's actually not that bad, uh, uh, Cherry. I mean, now that's tough because it's amazing the difference it is uh, between a church that has 75, 80 people and the church that has 100 or then 100 to 150. Um, it, it is it is really amazing just the difference because it's not as if if you drop down a little bit, all of a sudden, you know, all the jobs go away. I guess at a point the jobs go away because if you get small enough to a point, then you don't have necessarily as many you know young classes, um, and and you don't don't have nearly as many maybe youth activities or those kind of things. Sometimes that happens, but once you get to that seventy five eighty maybe a hundred mark, 
well, now you have a youth activity and you need multiple classrooms and, and you know, for, to handle your primary and secondary education. And, and there's all the other things that go along with it, security for the building and the cleaning of the building and uh, putting out of a church bulletin maybe that you didn't in the past, but you may not be large enough to have a church secretary um, or church administrator, whatever you want to call them these days. You, you start having all those things that a larger congregation needs, but you don't really have all the uh, um, all of the, the trappings of it, which, by the way, slightly different off topic from that, but by probably related. Um, I don't know if you remember the name Flavel Yakely. I'm not sure if brother brother Yakely is still alive or not. I don't I don't know. I think he may have passed. Somebody somebody out there may know. If my dad were here, he would know. Um, but uh, forty years ago, at this point, um, brother Yakely did a, a pretty probably the most extensive uh, survey of, of of growth and and so on inside churches of Christ maybe ever. Uh, if, if somebody's done a a more thorough one, I'm not aware of it. I, I know the uh, was it was it uh, was it Mac Lyon. Uh, uh, see, see the one that put out the, um, the the attendance book every year, the, the the directory of churches of Christ. I believe it was Mac that did that for a lot of years. I don't think has he passed. I think he may have passed too. Um, I'm assuming that book is still around. I haven't seen it in years. It was, I think uh, 21st Century Christian that was publishing it. Oh, I'm dusting off some old brain cells here. Uh, maybe somebody out there can correct me on some of that stuff. I don't. I don't remember exactly. But Brother Yakely did a, a, a very extensive study on, on, on church growth, and uh, had a lot of a lot of good thoughts in it, a lot of good conclusions. But on this topic, um, he, he he said something, and I don't remember the um, express. Uh, thank you, Connie. Says Mac has passed. Thank you. I appreciate for telling me that, Connie. Um, but. One of the one of the conclusions he drew was that I think is related to this discussion here is is that one of the keys to keeping a church growing is either having enough jobs for people to do or the perception of enough jobs for people to do. And is if I remember correctly, again, this is from 30 years ago when I was reading some of this stuff, but I mean, not quite 30, but a long time ago reading some of this stuff. Um. He says what happens is, and what his analysis has showed was that once people don't think there's anything for them to do, they tend to just sit down and not do anything. And one of the keys to, to keep a church growing is to keep people engaged, to keep them working. And so as the church gets larger, you need to expand the work and find more and more jobs for them to do. Now, the interesting part of his conclusion is that in order to fulfill just the standard jobs that you would have in a standard plan of work, we, we've got enough teachers in the classrooms. We've got enough people to care for our youth activities. We've got enough people to help organize and, 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 and gospel meetings and workshops and, 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 and uh, VBSs to, you know, to fill all the, all the roles and, and cook all the, the food for the potluck and, and, and do all just the standard stuff of a church work. His conclusion was that somewhere between 150 and 200 people is about the threshold that you need to get all of those standard jobs filled. Now, if his conclusion was right or not, I don't know. But that always interested me that that was one of the conclusions. And I may have some of the details wrong there because, again, this is a lot of years ago since I read the material. 
But when I first read it, I started thinking about, you know, think about how many churches peak out right about 125, 150. That's what Rockledge has been, even even pre-pandemic. Uh, I, I've been asking around because I'm trying to find out a little bit more about the history of the church here. Um, the largest largest anybody can, that I have asked can remember this congregation was about 180 members. And it's amazing how many churches of Christ peak somewhere in that 125 to about 150, 175 type range. It's hard to get a church to go from about 150, 200 up to 3, 350, 400. It's tough uh, just because it's a different style of work and a lot of people don't want it. A lot of people don't want, want it. They, they, we are very comfortable with a very traditional plan of work with the, you know, the spring gospel meeting, fall gospel meeting, summertime VBS, and, that, and that's what we have. And when you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it, it, you start capping the number of jobs that are available for people to do. And the people that are doing them sometimes get territorial about them. I've been teaching the, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been teaching the kindergarten class for 15 years in this church. Well, great. You've been doing it for 15 years. We love you and appreciate you. But the other, the other sister that just moved in who teaches kindergarten at the, at the public school, you know, they might, that person might have some capability in the classroom. And if you don't find a way to involve that person, that person's going to sit down and maybe they want to work. Maybe they want to do something. Well, in a church of 80, you got a church at 80 of 80 people and you get a, you get a elementary school school teacher and sits down in your in your uh, uh, auditorium, and man, the, the the sisters start salivating. You mean I can actually take a break sometime? You mean we've got somebody else who might actually be able to to do a, a VBS room? Oh, have mercy! Let's wrap our arms around that person, and, and so on, and so forth. But you let that church get a little bit larger. Lo and behold, now that person's a competitor to the to the two or three women that have control over that that particular classroom. Say, and it, it, the, the mentality changes, and from a leadership standpoint, man, it is tough to get that church to transition from from that role. Um, so, anyway, that, that's kind of off the topic, but it, it's a um, it, it's a it, it is churches are organizations. Okay, they're spiritual bodies and families and all those things that we talk about them, but they're organizations, and they suffer from the same organizational challenges that any business or any other you know club or community group do it, it there there is a organizational practical dynamic that takes place inside churches that has nothing to do with whether or not that church is sound and the people are faithful and uh, leadership would do well to spend some time analyzing their own work analyzing their own church and all of those things that go along with it there's there, there's more to growing the church than just being faithful to god there really is Okay, uh, let's go on to the next one here. But appreciate that, Cherry, for, for the uh, for the comment. Um, Travis, what we have down here in the next one. Second uh, Chronicles talks about God putting a lion spirit in the mouths of the prophets. Also, we read at times in 1 Samuel 16, 14, and Judges 9, 3, God using evil spirits. Uh, intuitively, this is um, odd from God. Is that a question? <laughs> because... I could just say, Travis, yes, and move on. And it's, it's, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you want some more comment on that than just, just on that. Um, uh, and I don't know that you know I have a, a particularly um, good answer specifics about it. This is one of those um, uh, 
comments, by the way, and I've used that expression in the past. By the way, uh, on the podcast side, Lynn Heath. Appreciate you, Lynn. Because I keep quoting Spock, and I knew Spock got it from somewhere. Apparently, the quote I use actually comes from Sherlock Holmes. Now I know. Um, you know, I started listening to the uh, complete works of Sherlock Holmes one time, and I never I never finished it. Um, I listen to books a lot more than I read them. I have the, I don't have the, because like when I'm listening to them, I can speed up the narrator, and I can go faster. It, it processes faster for me. I, it's just... I have a hard time doing the the, the 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 reading thing at length. I get bored. So anyway, um, um, okay, yep. Let me get Travis has got to follow up here to that. But uh, anyway, so my my beginning of my answer to you to get to that, I didn't actually get the quote. When you you know when you eliminate the impossible, that which remains, you no know, however how how however improbable, has to be your answer. And and, and the same basic pr- concept here. Okay, Travis follows that up with, we, we often think of God not being associated with anything lying or evil. So the question would be, how can this be? Um, so here, here's what you have to you, you have to do with God cannot lie, right? God cannot lie. We know that from the book of Titus, God who cannot lie. And that's true from then, um, you know, cover to cover in the Bible and from, from back into eternity, into eternity, God will never lie. So that that's not what's happening. Um, God will now, now then never commission someone to tell a lie. If God cannot lie, he then should not, cannot con- convince somebody else to tell a lie. Cannot do that either. Because James chapter 1, God never, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. I believe the thought there is not the idea of test. He obviously tests people all the time, but he never tempts someone to do, to do sin. Okay. Um, so that, that we know is not, not the case. Um, so as you think about this, um, understand that now the statement you make in this follow-up, we often think of God not being associated with anything lying or evil. That might be the, where I would begin to try to pick apart the, 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 the problem here. Is that um, um, what do we mean by? Thank you, thank you, Jonathan. I think I've said more than two um so far, but go right ahead. But the what do we mean by not being associated with anything evil? I know God cannot endorse evil, but God is associated with evil all of the time. God is associated with evil in Job and uses Satan to make a point. Because if you go back and you read Job chapter 1 carefully, you'll notice that Satan is not the one who brings up Job. God is. God is the one that asks Satan, first of all, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been going to and from the earth. And so hearing that answer, God says, okay, in your travels, in your observations of the, of the world, have you considered my servant Job? God starts this. He's very much affiliated with evil in the sense that he's having a conversation with the embodiment of evil and uses that evil to accomplish his, accomplish his means to show the fidelity of the human spirit in the person of Job. Right. By the way, 
if I, if 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 there is a book in the Bible that forever answers the problem or the doctrine of Calvinism, it is the book of Job. Completely off topic here, but you cannot be a Calvinist and read Job. Here's why I know that. Guess what Job did not have? Job did not have the Holy Spirit. The, 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 as, as the Calvinists would refer to it, the, the irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, which come about as a part of uh, the gospel and the, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit according to, to, to Calvinistic theology. Job had none of that. He had no access to um, any of the blessings that come from the gospel. He predates it very much so. So guess what? He should not be able to do what he did. Without any influence of the Holy Spirit at all, at least not direct influence, Job withstands a personal attack from Satan. Please explain that to me. Please explain to me the method, the, the means by which Job withstood the attack of Satan. There's no, there's no answer to that without, without denying Calvinistic theology. Does not happen. Okay? So, let's start there. Let's start there. But God absolutely is associated with and uses evil all the time. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, um, Abimelech, um, Judas. Uh, just, just think through your Bible. Just go through the Bible stories. Potiphar. Think God didn't use Potiphar? Yeah, he did. Potiphar's wife. God used all of these people to accomplish his means. Very often, God uses evil people to the accomplishment of his means. Okay? Um, so, how is how is the the the, uh, the references you you mentioned there, uh, Travis? Let me go back and pull those back up on the screen here a second. Now I scroll down to the bottom. Did I pin it? If I was smart, I pinned it. There it is. Um, nope, that's not that's not the right one. I didn't. I tried. I can pin the question so I can keep track of it. And I think I just I didn't do that to yours. Let me go back up here and get your references specifically. There it is. Um, First Samuel sixteen and Judges nine. This is. Um, um, uh, uh, I was actually I was thinking of Micaiah and 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 Ahab there. What is that? Um, it's got to be right there at the end of First Kings, right? First Kings 22, 23? It's not twenty four, is it? So right there at the end of First Kings, where, where Micaiah is called before Ahab and 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 God calls for a lying spirit and says, "Who shall who, who shall go out among us?" And you know, I need to convince the king to go into battle. Um, in that instance, how is that any different than God calling Satan before him? Because it was the day when the sons of God made their appearance before before God. Well, in that list, Satan comes. So as God is having this gathering of, of, of these messengers, why is it not possible that one like Satan is in the room? Because he was in the first chapter of Job. He was there in the first chapter of Job. And when God says, hey, I need this man to do that thing. Why could God not make use of an evil spirit just like he did an evil Pharaoh that he says in Romans 9, I raised you up so that you would do exactly what I needed you to do. So that would be my answer is that God uses evil people and sometimes evil spirits all the time. Okay. 
So that that would be that would be the, the beginning point of my answer. Now, could there also be some linguistic thing here? Because there are times when deception is endorsed in Scripture. Sometimes we think of lying as simply an attempt to deceive. But there are times deception is actually endorsed in Scripture. Um, the battle plan, the second battle plan at Ai, God very much instructs Joshua to deceive the, the defenders of Ai in a military campaign. It's still deception. Okay, um, Rahab deceives the um, uh, the spies that are the, the, the I guess the soldiers that come in looking for the spies, and very specifically in Hebrews eleven, she is endorsed by faith. She sent the spies out another way. The only way she can send the spies out another way is to have announced the first way. So uh, it, deception is not necessarily a sinful lie that we use that terminology. So there could also be some a, a linguistic thing there that, that, we're, that you're dealing with. But I don't like to go down that route because then you get to the parsing of words and, and what is a lie and when is I don't want to go down that road because I don't, I don't think you need to. I would I would go to to the first part, which is this concept. You know the the the, the thought, and I'm I'm not going to pull this passage off the top of my head. Um, that his eyes are too holy, or something of that. That's got to be that Haggai Haggai or Habakkuk sticks in my brain. The H H minor prophet sticks in my brain. Could be Isaiah though. Um, but somebody find that verse for me. You, somebody's got to remember what the verse I'm I'm talking about um, is. Um, but. I don't know that, you know, his eyes are too holy to see evil. Well, that can't be the case because he sees evil all the time. Uh, he knows exactly what he's omniscient. He's, he's omnipresent. He sees everything and he registers all the sin and he talks to sinful people. He came and talked to Adam and Eve in their presence after they had sinned, before they had been forgiven. So the, the, this concept that God just cannot be in the presence of or associated with evil I, I know what we're trying to say, and it's true. God cannot be in fellowship with and, and harmonize with evil. But God is sovereign and absolutely can call into judgment or call before him for his own means. People of any qual quality, uh, thank you, Travis, Habakkuk 1.13. See, I was at least in the ballpark. Um, um, but God absolutely makes use of evil things and evil people all the time. And so I don't see why that wouldn't change any anything at all when you make that an evil spirit. Well, why why would there be a distinction there? I don't know how to make that uh, make that in, make that uh, make that argument. Uh, let me go ahead and I think Travis got one more here follow up to kind of wrap this thought up here. We got about ten minutes left. Twice lately, I've had folks state, "How could God create evil? Did He? Are we these spirits simply uh, simple, uh, or were these spirits simply as man?" Uh, those who had free will to make uh, choices of evil. Um, I would lean toward that latter. Uh, I don't think God created anything evil. I believe things, he created things that had free will um, and they um, th they made a choice to sin. The difference seems to be between the angelic beings um, that have apparently sinned, Second uh, Peter chapter two would reference, and that's what we, what's the common view that people have about the origin of Satan. The difference being they don't seem to be have uh, have a, an offer of redemption at any point. 
And I've heard a lot of speculation about that, I suppose, um, but I don't really know the answer is to that. They're not made out of flesh and blood. Uh, they're never said to be crowned with glory and honor like, like humans. They're never said to be made in the image of God uh, like humans are. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, there's obviously some, some difference with them. And maybe it's simply the case that unlike us, that God created in a world in, 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 you know, encapsulated in flesh, and, and we th there's a statement of there's a necessity of, a, of an unseen, an unfulfilled faith that we must have, and that the angels that were in actually in the, 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 the physical presence of God may be the wrong way of saying that, but within the, within the, 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 the non-materialistic presence of God. Um, so there was nothing left for them to see. There was nothing left for them to hope for, nothing left for them in that sense to have faith in because they were already there. Faith had become sight. And maybe that's the reason they're not offered the uh, uh, any path of redemption, or certainly not any path of redemption of which we were aware. Um, you know, so, but yes, I, I would go down the path in agreement with you there, Travis, that um, God did not uh, get, did not create evil. Got about eight minutes left here before we get to the top of the hour. Uh, let's scroll, scroll back up here and, and see what some of y'all have been saying. Um... um so some comments there continued about renewing the church and growth and all of that. I think I've talked about that probably long enough, but I do appreciate your comments on there. See if I can pick up something else here in the last seven or eight minutes. Um, um, here I am saying, um, but that that's an okay. Um, when I'm scrolling through the chat, it means I'm trying to, um, I'm just trying to make noise while I'm scrolling, scrolling through the, um, through the, through the chat here. So it's just not dead air. While I'm while I'm doing this, there you go, Gita. Please explain why you. Oh boy, <laughs> that's what we need to start the hour on with Gita. Oh mercy, I should have read that more thoroughly before I put that on the screen. I got seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm gonna tell you what, Gita. If you're here tomorrow, let's start there because I I might need the whole hour on that one because if I go down that path, I know I'm gonna get at least some of y'all grumpy with me. So let me skip down here to Johnny. I just highlighted it, Gita. I got it pinned, and we will we will come back to that. Johnny though says, pandemic has shown the real Christians, those who haven't returned, were not converted, or true to the faith. I know what you said. Um, I know what you're saying there, Johnny, and I'm not going to argue with you. Um, here's my here's my only hesitation, and I, I know you don't mean this, Johnny. I know you, uh, and I and I, and I know your the, the studies you're doing and the place you're going to school, all that. So I, so I know that's not what you mean, and I know I'm going to agree with you when we're done. But I read that, and at least the way you typed it, it sounds almost like. And again, I know you're not saying this. It sounds almost like you're making the argument that a Baptist would make about the once saved, always saved doctrine. That anybody that falls away was not truly faithful, was never truly converted. Uh, and that's not the case. Because Judas was one of the 12. And Jesus says, of the ones that you gave me, I lost none except the one. Which means he did lose the one. And you can't lose something you don't have. Um, and so on. So uh, that... That concept, or or uh, Galatians chapter five, when Paul's talking about those who are um, seeking to um, have circumcision, 
uh, put upon them and start to keep the things of the law of Moses. He says to them, you are fallen from grace. You see, the Baptists would argue, well, since because, since they fell from grace, they were never really there. They were never really truly converted. And so that's that's how the, the Baptist and other uh, once saved, always saved or Calvinistic, you know, perseverance of the saints or perseverance of the saints, rather. Um, that's how they address those things. And that's how they get around those passages. So I know that's not what you're saying. Because uh, I, 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 I've, we've we've talked enough together, I know that's not where you're going with it. But let me let me just say, be careful in the verbiage and how you how you express that thought. Because if you say that in certain circles, I believe you're I believe you're going to come away with a different uh, a different mentality than than uh, or a different conclusion than, than what you're trying to express. So uh, I do appreciate the sentiment though, because I, I think it, it has shown it has certainly shown uh, just how the level of faithfulness that everybody has uh that is it has highlighted that and you know there's some some of that kind of language in first corinthians or about being about every 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 man's work being tested with fire i mean you may go out and 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 baptize 100 people in a year uh and if only 10 of them are faithful six months out okay that's not that's not normal if you're baptizing 100 people and 90 of them fall away in the first year or six months you need to reevaluate your process. You're doing something wrong. That should not happen. More people than that should remain faithful. And so every man's work is going to be tested with fire. And what we have seen here over the last couple of years is exactly that. Our own personal lives, our own personal faith, our own personal commitment, and that also of the the work of, of churches. You know, there there is a reason that some churches have lost 50, 60, 70% of their membership. And there's a reason other churches have only lost 5, 10, 15% of their, or I say their membership, of their attendance. There's a reason. Now, there, there might be multiple reasons, right? Uh, Rockledge, for example, uh, we're down 50 or 60%. Well, that, that probably should tell us there's more that we needed to have done and could have done, right? But it's also the case that Rockledge is a very a very elderly congregation. Uh, we, we have, we have, you know, I'm 51 and I bring down the average age of our, of our membership. I, I'm, I'm under the average. We're an elderly church here. Uh, and that probably needs to, that's one of the things we need to start working on. But, you know, if you have a, 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 a demographic that skews that heavily to the, to the older side and you have a, you have a, a, a pandemic, which is directly impacts, I mean, the, the greatest you know, single thing that the determinant factor about how badly this in, this disease would impact you was age. Uh, a couple of things after that, but age was like number one. Well, of course, that 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 church is going to be impacted a whole lot more than a church that's got a, a lot of young families in it. So there are there's more than one factor. But absolutely, if if, if we need to be honest with ourselves and look at our churches. If we are in a church that has that has been devastated by this, now some of it, again, age could be geography. Maybe you're in an area that's impacted more than others. A lot of different factors there. But don't discount the fact that the things that we have been teaching in the church over the last 10, 15, 20, 30, whatever the case is, the level of biblical instruction, the 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 the, the emphasis on on uh, the application of faith and the discipleship and the training of believers and and all of that. That will bear fruit, and that fruit might very well be that when you hit a hard time, a lot of your members leave. So uh, let's look to them, absolutely. Can let's look to them, absolutely. But let's also then look back to us, because those of us that remain might be at least 
culpable in the in, in, in it because we didn't do a very good job in helping disciples, Luke chapter nine, to count the cost of discipleship. And then they then they fell away. So there's a lot to be learned from this pandemic, and we need to spend a lot of time doing it. Um, it's one minute. Man, y'all are just filling me up with questions today. Nelson, I, I'll get that one down there for you. I'll try to highlight that and, and remember it as I can. Um, let's see. Um, let's see what we have here. Do, 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 do. Wow, I'm only I'm still a long ways behind. Let's see if I've got any brand new questions there that I need to catch on to. Um, um, screen. Take some other noise than um. So. So that y'all can not, not not make fun of me about being saying um all the time. Um, I said I just said um again right after I said I wasn't going to do that. I think that's all at least in terms of brand new questions. So I need to get to Nelson asking about can you expand on your thoughts about leaving text in the first century, and then Gita about Jesus being forsaken on the cross. I need to carry those two again or over until tomorrow. So we'll do that. Uh, and I think that's all that I see. Is Let me know if I've missed some as I scroll through here. If you have a, a at least a particularly brand new question on some of the topic we had not covered yet today, let's. Uh, if you have one of those, let me know. I, I, those are the two that I have, the one from Gita and the one that's on the screen currently from Nelson. So I'll try to get to those First thing uh, tomorrow. <coughs> so we are at the top of the hour. So let's go ahead and um, break for the top of the hour. And we will be back here in just a couple of moments for the second hour where we continue our study of the book of First Peter. We are in the uh, middle part of chapter two, and we will be right back here shortly. And sit tight. We'll be right back.
welcome back everybody to um, second hour here of From the Deep End, uh, where, where we are going to pick up a study of the book of First Peter. We are going to be in chapter two this uh, this fine day as we uh, continue that. I think our fourteenth lesson on the book of First uh, Peter. Uh, by the way, just learned something. Just learned something. Apparently, our our uh, top of the hour breaks are going to be maybe a minute or two longer than normal. Uh, because to go refill my my cup there, uh, at, you know, when I was back at the house, I just had to walk out of my room and the kitchen was right there. So I could go for refill my water cup uh, real quickly. Um, if I needed to use a restroom, it's right there. I'm now in a church building and it's a long way down the hallway to the kitchen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long way. It's even farther down the hallway to the restroom. So those, those breaks may get a little bit, a uh, little bit farther spread out. I'm going to have to, you know, get some running in, get some cardio in during the <laughs> top of the hour. No, no, that's not happening. I'm, I'm not doing that during the top of the hour. There will be no cardio going on to get ready, get ready for the next Bible study. So a uh, little adjustment, going to have to make that. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Well, before before I always like to make this reminder when we start the second hour, uh, particularly if we've got something coming up, I believe Truth Tuesdays are going to be on today, last I heard anyway. Uh, I should know because usually they start texting each other here as they make preps to get started. So I should know here in just a minute as soon as I know definitively, I'll let you know. But that's 10 o'clock. 11 o'clock, we have Christianity Now with, with Tony Brewer and Aaron Dotson on. Um, 7 o'clock, hey, long scheduled. We had this guy scheduled out weeks and weeks in advance. Jonathan Exum <laughs> is going to be with us in the 7 o'clock hour for the Connect meeting. Now, if you weren't here in the first hour, uh, my speaker for tonight um, had to cancel on, on us. Uh, we'll get, we'll get, it was David Sproul. We'll get David scheduled back in here just as soon as we can. always like to hear David. But uh, I saw Jonathan in the comment section and just on the spot asked Jonathan if he would fill in tonight. He, he agreed to do it. And I know, Jonathan, you put your title in there, something about love, if I remember. I have to go back through through and find that. But we'll have Jonathan on at 11. And then in the 8 o'clock hour, uh, Tony Brewer will be back with us for the second time today, uh, continue his cogitations blog um, on at the uh, 8 o'clock hour of that. So um, Travis had a technical question there. Let me see what I got here. I'm still, this is a brand new setup for me today, new camera. Uh, new, new setup, obviously, new, new office space. And as I said in the first hour, if you're just joining us, um, bear with me a little bit on this because one of the things I'm concerned about is this is a very air or a sound reflective environment. It, it, the walls are hard. I've got so far still empty wood bookcases behind me. Uh, on my desk that I had back at the house, I had a sound deadening pad on the uh, desktop and it was a composite type desktop anyway. This is this is wood, and I've got two desks here. And if I touch either one of them, there's just everything around here is going to make noise. And I'm talking directly into a corner, so any my voice is going to echo off that wall behind me and probably bounce right back to the microphone. Got all kind of stuff going on here that I'm going to have to take some time to hopefully get this set up and the studio set up improved a little bit. But uh, I like the lighting in here a little bit better. The camera's better than I have been using that. I'm really excited about that. But this is a lot of a uh, lot of stuff I need to deal with. But I want to read Travis is here. I hadn't read that yet. So in regard to sound volume on the high end, louder volume for when I walk around the house, there is more distortion. Lower end sound is not too bad. So let me see if the um, let me back that. I've got a, I got the, I turned the, both the, when I started this morning. Uh, I turned up the uh, compressor that I use and the noise gate 
trying to deal with some of this. If you're getting some distortion on the high end, it may be the, the compressor's compressing the high end a little too quickly, a little too aggressively. So let, let me back the compressor off here just a second. Give me just a second here. Um, let me back that compressor down a little bit. Now, what that will allow for, if you don't know what a compressor does, it it, it basically, it, it does what it sounds like it does. It compresses sound. And so your loud noises, like if I were to start clapping or if I were to start yelling uh, during, the, during the lesson, instead of blowing out your ears, a compressor will still allow the full sound to come out, but will take off the peak a little bit so it doesn't like blast out your speakers. Um, and if you get if you get compression set up right, it really, really adds, makes it a really sweet sound. And I have not had time to play with that at all. Anyway, thank you for that. I need to get to the study, but I did just back that off, um, um, back that off a little bit. So maybe maybe toward the end of the hour or something, or Travis, let me know and we'll see how that's going. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the study and not take up any more of your time. Um, and get over here. Now I gotta see if I which one I like and I don't like. Um, I don't know why this would make any difference on the studio setup, but sure. Well, so so many things. I said I wasn't gonna take up any of your time doing that. Let's go with. Um, I guess let's go back to the one I had before, down there in the corner. I guess that'll work. All right. It's just, it's, I'm sorry. It's just, and I'm also, by the way, another technical thing here. I said it wasn't going to take up any more of your time. Before, my camera was over here in the center, and I always kept the, the stream. I, I have a screen here where I'm watching the stream. I always kept it on this monitor, and the, um, kept my Bible program over here, my left monitor. And of course, I had that big monitor above my third monitor. Y'all can't see it, but it's actually over there on the, uh, on the desktop over there. Y'all can't see it. That's where I keep the, the podcast, the audio stream going. So it's, I've got, it's all different and I'm just out of sorts this morning. So bear with me. Okay. All right. No, no, enough, enough of the technical stuff. Let me get, let me get to the, the text here in first Peter two. That's why, that's why y'all are here. Um, everybody except Travis. So what we have here in first Peter chapter two is we have been talking about um, the, well, Peter's been talking about the, once again, I go back to, to where we start the purpose statement of the book, I never want y'all to forget that through this entire study. I, I think I've probably mentioned it at the start of every lesson so far in this book, and I'm going to continue to do that throughout the rest of this study. Um, you, if you if you don't, don't have 1 Peter 5.12 in your brain yet, you should, because that's what Peter says. I have written to you briefly that you may understand or that you may know that what you're standing in is the true, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the message of the book. Persecution is on the rise. Um, I believe this is largely, as we've said over and again, I believe this is largely a Jewish book. And persecution has arisen to the Jews, and they are being exhorted to stand firm in their in their faith in the midst of this the, the doubt that is rising within them. And so all through chapter one, as we have seen, there is an appeal to the prophets, there's an appeal to the foreknowledge of God. And, and Peter doesn't come right out and use the same language that Paul does in terms of the mystery and all the things that go along with it, but he's talking about exactly the same topic. And so what we have here is uh, a reminder that all of this is according to God's plan. And I love that phrase right there at the end of chapter one. And this word is the good news. This word. This word that, you know, as we, I'm not going to go back and review all of that. We've done that in several times in days past, but 
just uh, again, according to the foreknowledge of God, the spirit predicted of the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Basically, when you get to the end of chapter one, what Peter is saying is this message, the one, this true grace that you received, this is the good news that, re, that was preached to you. In other words, nothing that has happened is outside of what has been preached. Everything that has happened has been predicted, foretold of the, of the sufferings and the glories that follow. You haven't made a mistake. Everything is still good. And so that's where you begin in chapter two, where Peter says, because of all of that, obviously don't turn against each other. Don't get angry. Don't slander against one another, but desire the pure spiritual milk of God's word, because that is the only thing that's going to sustain you in this time. As I said, as we studied that text a few days ago, I don't believe this opening section here is a is this the contrast that's over in the book of Hebrews where you have milk versus strong meat. I don't think that's the contrast here. But the contrast here is that at, you are, you, 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 like an infant, there's one source of nutrition for you. A mother's milk is the single source of nutrition for an infant, right? That's the single source. That's what he needs. That's what he craves. And if you're going to get through this period of time, if you're going to continue to grow and mature and, you know, to, to use the language of Second Peter, if you're going to add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, and so on, if you're going to do that, there's only one source for it. That is the pure spiritual milk of God's word. And so he then says, um, that's what you need to do. Turn to God's word. This is the word that was preached to you. And I believe we, we had already covered this section here. You came to him um, a, a, as you come to him, a living stone rejected. You're going to offer up spiritual sacrifices. He is the living stone that was laid in Zion. Uh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, as we talked about. I think this was Thursday of last week. Uh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, your faith is valid. If you if you follow him, you're, you're going to be vindicated. So the honor is to you who believe, but for those who do not believe, right, the builders rejected the stone. I believe, I believe that's a reference to... Uh, the 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 structure the structure of Jewish religion, obviously like the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the high priests, the structure, all of that that was there, all of the uh, as Matthew says, the the common people received Jesus gladly. The leadership, the structure, the national structure of Israel all rejected him as the Messiah, and so they did, and and to him they had become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So that's what happened to them. You, on the other hand, um, he is going to be the one who gives you uh, honor for your belief. And just to bring up that, go up there one time to see that in the text that is before, that is what is going to happen to them. When he says back here at the very opening of the book, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have been resurrected to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he says, you're going to suffer for a little while. The test is going to show that your faith is genuine and that that faith that you have is more precious than gold. It's going to come through the fiery trial. It's going to come through that test by fire, and it's going to be found in, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said before, I, I don't think that is talking about the end of the world. It's certainly true at the end of the world that those who are found in Christ at the end of the world are going to be praiseworthy and receive glory and honor. I don't dispute that at all. Uh, you know what a glorious day that will be. But I do believe he's talking here about this revelation of Jesus Christ, large as a first century item, 
largely because, as I said, as we went through this fully, back up in verse 6, there is a time statement to the suffering that is coming. So the suffering is going to be for a little while, and if the suffering is for a little while, and the honor is, is at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if this is a little while for a first century thing, and this is the end of the world, it seems to me there's a really large gap between the suffering and the vindication of the faith. And that doesn't seem to be the case, say, in the book of Revelation. The faith of those is vindicated uh, at the end of the 42 months, at the end of the three, three and a half years, at the end of the 1290 days. Uh, and they who, whose faith had been vindicated, those who had been martyred for the testimony about Christ that they bore, chapter 6, chapter 20, uh, they, they are glorified and they reign with Christ during the thousand year during the thousand year reign of Jesus, which takes place after the wedding feast of chapter 19. In other words, there's not a gap. Okay, It starts with the millennial reign, quote unquote, of Jesus, which begins, well, actually begins in, in Acts 2, but um, they, they reign with him during that period of time, I believe, at the, at the end of the judgment of the book of Revelation. I place that in the, that judgment in and around the events of AD 70. I don't, you know, that's, anyway, that, that's, that's where I've gone with that in the past. You've heard me say all of those things before. So that, that's where I go with it. Obviously, others would disagree with that, but that, that's where I take it. So chapter, uh, two and, or chapter 2 and verse 9, I think that's about where we were. We may have already looked at some of this, but I'm going to start here as because it's, you know, we had, it was Thursday, and then I took Monday off, and that's more than about 90 minutes of my time. So my, my brain's already forgotten where we were. So I'm going to start in verse 9, and hopefully that'll get us close to where we were. All right, so he says to them in verse 9, you are a chosen race. Then he says three things here. Well, four things, actually. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, I have held to the case that um, this book is largely Jewish. I have also stated that there, obviously, as you go back to, to the audience that this book was intended for, which is uh, the strangers of the exile in Asia, um, uh, Pontus, uh, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, I think that's all the ones listed there, that those churches, particularly by the time First Peter was written, those churches would largely be or would be comprised mostly of Gentiles. Um, there, in each of those areas, there were far more Gentiles that were in those areas than there were Jews. The only place on the world you're going to find more Jews than Gentiles would have been back in the, in the, you know, the region surrounding Jerusalem. So the population potential membership of, of each of those areas was, was skewed heavily toward people being Gentile. So when I say this book is written largely to Jews, I, I have no doubt, let me say it this way, I have no doubt that it is written from a Jewish perspective. There's no reason, there's no way you look at the church and refer to the church as the, 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 uh, the uh, elect exiles of the dysphoria, of the dispersion, from a Gentile standpoint, a Gentile would never refer to God's people in that manner, would never even occur to him to do so. Peter, who was very much a Jew and very proud of being a Jew, uh, would have had no problem at all thinking of the church in exactly those terms. And I believe what we have here in verse 9 is an appeal directly to um, at least Jewish imagery, but probably Jewish individuals. If I were going to find a verse in 1 Peter that is, if not exclusively, largely Gentile, it would actually be the next one. 
Um, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if, if I were going to include the Gentiles, the Jews and Gentiles together, uh, it would be right here. And then possibly uh, in this next section, although I may change my mind on that or have a little bit different tune on it when I get down there to verses 11 and 12. So um, I need you to understand, and I've tried to say this throughout the course of this study, that I believe this is a largely Jewish book written almost exclusively from a Jewish perspective. But obviously the, the region it's going into, you can't exclude the idea that there were Gentiles in the mix. All right. So wanted to say that as we get into this little section, because it's right in here that I think you have uh, a, a, a perhaps an introduction or a recognition of the Gentile uh, portions of the of the churches in the areas, the regions to which this has been written. So let's go through this point by point here. Just look at each of them. Um, he says to them, you are a chosen race, right? A chosen race. Now, I, I'm going to try to bring up, as I do from time to time, some of the highlights here, you know, the, those center column references. If you don't use them, you really need to learn how to use them. Um, there's a reason they're in the Bible text. And even just from a preacher's perspective, I can't tell you how many times I'll be uh, preaching and I'll forget off the top of my head. Okay, that's a quotation from what what passage? Um, I use them all the time because they're they're very valuable. And that's one reason I try to highlight them for you when they're relevant going through here. But the concept that Israel was a chosen people, um, um, the concept that this is a chosen people, a chosen race. Again, that would resonate very much with a Jewish audience. God says back in the book of Deuteronomy, again, several times in the book of Deuteronomy, you've got two, questions, two references there, uh, Deuteronomy 10, Isaiah 43. But God would say to the people, I chose you, not because you were the greatest among the nations, but because you were the least. The idea that they were the chosen people of God was very much, very much a case. They, they appreciated the idea that um, that they were unique among the nations. There was no doubt in their minds that they were unique among the nations. No doubt whatsoever. This would have been a very uh, appealing comment to them. You are a chosen nation. He says to them, you are a royal priesthood. Now, catch the, catch the, 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 the connection here, the couplet here. A royal priesthood and a holy nation. So scroll back up here earlier in this same chapter and notice what he says. Here you are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. So the priesthood has already been called holy back in uh, chapter five or verse five of chapter two. In this instance, Peter refers to it not as a holy priesthood, but as a, a royal priesthood, a kingdom type priesthood is really the idea here. Um, and let's see if that's the reference I think it is. Once you go here, I pulled it up there on the screen for you there, Revelation 5 and verse number 10. Really, this is a really interesting passage to, to make the connection here. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and just turn us over there to Romans, Revelation 5 and verse number 10. As the seals are opened, right? They sang a new song for, starting 5, 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Inside the book of Revelation, as, as the Christ is found, the lamb who's going to be slain before the foundation of the world, he's about to, to, to write out as you get in chapter 5, 6, and so on. The statement that is made is, by the shedding of your blood, you've taken people from every, every tribe, every language, every people, and all of those things. You've taken them, and you have made them a kingdom of priests, and they shall then reign while they are on the earth. All right, I don't know that that's necessarily the immediate thought that, that Peter has in, in store here, but I know it's related. And I love the, the, the way that he does this. He refers to them as a royal priesthood and a holy priesthood in back-to-back -back things. What he does there, I think, very nicely is to connect the, the kingship of, of the, uh, the nature of the kingdom. They are priests of the kingdom of God. And in that sense, they are a royal priesthood, but they're also then holy, set apart for his service, called as, as those to offer up sacrifices. Again, read the book of Hebrews and, and understand the, the requirements of the priest, that he must have something of which to offer, and so on. All of those things, those things are available uh, uh, to this royal kingdom priesthood. It's holy and it's royal. But he also then says, it is a holy nation. Once again, we would uh, appeal very much to a, a Jewish mentality of, of themselves. Here's this word holy, and by holy we don't necessarily mean pure in the sense that, that we would mean it, but sanctified, set apart, called out. And so what you have here is a, is a claim in four statements. Chosen, a chosen race, serving in a kingly capacity as a priest, set apart as a nation to serve for God and then have been a people of, of, of his own possession. I think the King James here, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I didn't check uh, this morning, but I believe the King James there says a peculiar people, a people possessed by God himself. I don't want you to lose the train of thought here. And that train of thought once again goes back to 1 Peter chapter 5 true grace of God, stand firm in it. So the doubt that you have as you read down through this section is you need to understand that you came to him. He was a living stone and had been rejected by men. Who rejected him? Once again, it was the builders that had rejected him. Nobody else had. It was the builders. John chapter 1, he came unto his own, his own received him not. And so the people that you had relied upon to give you your uh, understanding of the law of Moses, they sit in the seat of Moses, Jesus would say about them in Matthew 23. The people that you had looked up to, perhaps, as your spiritual leaders, the people that you had trusted for all of your life, for generations of your family life, the very ones that you thought were the wise ones, they rejected him. Now, you have, for the last potentially 30 years or plus, been standing out here on your own, probably ostracized, certainly isolated from your family, from your countrymen, from, oh, I don't know, 
maybe from exactly your race, maybe from the priesthood, maybe from your nation, and maybe you have been set apart from or or feel like you have been rejected from, from those that were the apple of God's eye, as God refers to Israel in the Old Testament. So you have turned your back on all of those things, and the people that you held as the, the, the ones who, who had the most insight, that, that had the most clout in terms of understanding the things of God and, and proclaiming his, his goodness to you, th those people, you have turned away from all of them. And what I need you to understand is, Peter says to them, they are the ones who have stumbled. And they are the ones who were stumbled once again as they were destined to do. God always said, a remnant will remain. That's part of prophecy. Don't believe here, here he's talking about the, the, the destiny, the, 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 the predetermination, the predestination of each of the individuals in this class. But prophecy had always said an, an elected remnant by grace would remain. And once again, as we have studied all the way through chapter one, according to the foreknowledge of God, as the Spirit had predicted, as the prophets had prophesied, as the angels had desired to understand and to look into. And here again, here you are chosen. These people are, are destined not to be that group. You are that group. You are the fulfillment of prophecy. I believe that's the point that he's making. And he's doing so by making a call back to their race. They are the seed of Abraham. To the king, they are the seed of David. To the priesthood, they are the heirs of, of, of the priesthood. They are holy. They were the ones set apart for God. They were that nation separate from the rest of the world. They were the people of God's possession. We are the, the ones to whom the promises were made. I believe all of that is absolutely an emphasis on their, their person. You have not made a wrong choice. You're standing in the true grace of God, and you have lost nothing. You are still chosen. You are still royal. You are still holy, and you are still the people of God. Don't give up. All right? Now, verse number 10. Um, well, actually, verse the second part of that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvel, into his marvelous light. If you were wanting to argue with me about the, the audience of this book, here would be perhaps the beginning of when you should do so. I'm going to give you the best argument that I can see against my position that this is heavily a Jewish book, and it starts right here. Because it would be very easy to read that statement there and um, see... Um, a reference to the Gentiles. The fact I pulled up here a reference. I did I, the as, as I said the center column reference here. The the editors who did this the ESV translation here believe this is a reference back to Isaiah forty two and verse number sixteen. So let's turn over there to Isaiah forty two and uh, verse number sixteen. It says, "I will lead the blind in a way they did not know. They do not know. In paths they have not known. I will guide them." I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places in the level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. All right? They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. All right? In this section of Isaiah, 
it's going to be talking about people would say okay this is going to be talking about the the, the uh, at least inclusive of the uh, the bringing in of the gentiles into the kingdom of god and i cannot deny at all that it is certainly true that the gentiles are spoken of as being in darkness of light even even um well, I'm going to hold on to that. Hold on to that just a second. I was about to jump ahead of myself there a little bit. Let me back that up. Can't argue with that point at all. And I'll freely admit, if I'm going to say the Gentiles are directly included in the first two chapters of 1 Peter, it's right here. Okay. Even further, verse number 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Who does that sound like? Oh, that sounds just like the Gentiles. That sounds just like the Gentiles. The verses, the verses I bring in mind is particularly over there in Romans chapter nine, verses twenty-five and twenty-six. You are not a people. You who are not a people are now the people of God. Okay, that that's that sounds a whole lot like the way that Paul is referencing the Gentiles. Can't deny that. I cannot deny that at all. I'm not going to try that. Um, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, that sounds a whole lot like Romans 9, 10, 11. Certainly does, and may very well be. And this is one of those things, if you ask me on Tuesday, I'm going to give you one answer. If you ask me on Wednesday, I might give you a different answer because I kind of waffle on this. I'm not certain. I'm not certain that it is. Because of verse number 9, Is it the case that there was ever a time when even the Jews were not the people of God? Sure. Before Abraham. Before the covenant with Abraham, Abraham's family, that which became the Jews, were not a people of God. I think this is looking backwards. Or, or at least the imagery is looking backwards. Now, this may be making too much of something. I may be reading too much into it, and I admit that freely. As I said, this is something I have waffled on over the years in terms of my understanding of this book. Kind of gone, as waffling suggests, kind of gone back and forth on it. Because the surface reading certainly sounds like Paul is now including the Gentiles. Um, I don't particularly waffle on verse number nine. I think verse number nine... Is is, is 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 certainly, again, written from a Jewish perspective. It may simply be the case that Peter is um, telling the Gentiles that you are now receiving all of the same blessings that the Jews have received. That is entirely possible. Um, don't think it is. I don't think it is. Because the comparison here is not to the... Um, you know, well, look at the first word of, of verse of, of, of verse number nine. Now, sometimes that word it's the prefix, the the, uh, the conjunction day or de in the in the uh, in the Greek English characters D and E delta epsilon in the in the Greek characters can be can be translated and also can be translated but. Me here, this is a but because these the, the, the verses eight and nine verses eight talks about those who have fallen away, verse nine. Talk about those who have not. Okay. Um, so 
that's what I'm thinking there is that this is a but and that the com the, the complement or the, the the contrasting portion of this couplet would be they that stumbled because they disobey the word would be those to whom he has become a stumbling and a rock of offense the fulfillment of the stones that have rejected that have rejected him has become or that he has become or rather the builders rejected him and he has become the chief cornerstone that's jewish that that I'm that I'm 100% convinced of because that's that's John 1 he came into his own but his own did not receive him so that to me then verse 9 begins in that Jewish perspective. They fell, you did not. So instead of going down to the end of, uh, of Romans chapter 9, pull my drawer out there a little bit. Instead of going to the end of Romans chapter 9, I would direct you back closer maybe to the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Um, because the question in Romans chapter 9 Verse number six is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. They are not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. As Paul begins to, to move from chapter eight into chapter nine, he doesn't immediately go from, okay, some of the Jews have fallen away to the Gentiles. He begins by making the argument of the, of the distinction between faithful Jews, the remnant chosen by, uh, uh, by grace, and unfaithful Jews. And he does so with his first illustration being Isaac and Ishmael. Not everybody that is of a dis physical descendancy of Abraham from a biblical mystery, plan of God, eternal purpose of God consideration are considered to be the seed of Abraham. Okay, that goes all the way back to chapter two of the book of Romans. Not everyone is not he. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. Right, that's that's the construct. Not every person who claims lineage in um, um, Israel uh, 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 Abrahamic connection is from Abraham. And so then, all the way if you move on down through chapter nine of Romans, and let me see the the uh, uh, the verse verse fourteen is not the one I meant to get to, but we'll stop here just for a second. Is there injustice on God's part that not all of the seed of Abraham are going to make it? His answer to that is no. And so he says, well, wait a minute. Why are you still finding fault with us then if you're the one who chose us to do these things? And we've studied this at length as we study through the book of Romans. Okay. But then notice this. And of course, his answer is no, well, God, God's the potter and you're the clay and you can't argue against the potter. Um, it, the fact that he chose you doesn't mean that he endorses the rest of your life. He chose you to do one thing, and that was to bring the Christ through the seed of Abraham, the son of David. That was, that's why your nation was chosen. He didn't choose you to save you individually. He chose you to do his job. And the job he wanted was you to bring the Christ into the world. And that doesn't excuse you then from having to be righteous on your own. You still have to be a righteous person. And so he says there in verse um, 22, what if God, desiring to show his, his wrath and to make known his power, hath endured with much patience the vessels of wrath pre pre prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called. Here's the point I want to make for you. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right? 
Here's why I think First Peter, it's one of the reasons I think First Peter 2 might actually be looking back to Jews and not exclu- exclusively forward to the inclusion of the Gentiles. When we read verses 23 and 24, and I may very well have done this in studying of the book of Romans because I didn't, I don't, I can't remember. It's been, been quite a while now. When we were back in chapter nine, it's been a few months, a few months ago. I don't remember exactly what I said there. Travis, you probably got it memorized. You can tell me what I said. But the, um, give me just a second here. The, the verse doesn't say, and this is how sometimes I think we read it. Let me go back and read verse 22 and 23 again, how I think we read it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared a hand for glory, meaning the Gentiles? So I think we read that phrase, even us whom he called the Gentiles. No. Paul's point here is that it is from his perspective as he writes, it is presumed that the Jews were the ones who were called for glory. That would be that would be the presumption that Paul, from his perspective, his Jewish perspective, writing to a largely Jewish audience, nobody would doubt that. The thing they would have problems understanding and problems accepting was that there were vessels of wrath predestined for destruction that were Jews. That would be the problem. A Jew, if you had just asked him outside of, say, reading the book of Romans, if you had just asked him, who are the people of God? And who are the people that are not the people of God? That's an easy answer, right? Paul's point in Romans 9 is, listen, there were some Jew, there are Gentiles predestined for glory. And there are Jews predestined for glory. But there are also Gentiles predestined for destruction, and there are Jews predestined for destruction. His point in quoting then Hosea in the verses that follow is that there are Gentiles also who will be called my people. The people who are not my people will be called the sons of the living God. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. flipping it on its head. Vessels for mercy, for destruction, vessels for glory come out of both camps. And so that gets us then here into um, uh, uh, beginning of chapter, is it chapter 10? Um, where, where Paul makes that, uh, makes that argument that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall therefore or then be saved. Chapter 11, I ask then, as God rejected his people, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, and so on. I've kept my, he says, even in the down of Baal, 7,000 are saved, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a, a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, it would be, uh, it would no longer be of grace. What then? 
as Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. He then says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay? I believe that's basically the same thing we have here. The elect received it. The rest were hardened. So that's where we are. Verse number 10. Once you were not a people. One more time. Let me admit. The language here surely sounds like the Gentiles. And the reason it sounds like the Gentiles is because it is true of the Gentiles. Okay? And because it because these words, let me let me say it this way. If you put this writing in a different book, or if you put it in a context where Paul, like the latter part of Romans 9, is talking directly about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. It, there, there's absolutely nothing here that if you applied this strictly to the Gentiles would be at all in error or wrong. All right? And so there's there's literally no way that I could, from a from just a, a some kind of grammatical or linguistic kind of approach to this, say this can't be this this is not the Gentiles. I admit that freely, and I could be making too much out of a you know, mountain out of a molehill, as they say, and be and be flat wrong here. But it seems like an odd to me, an odd inclusion into something that has been so heavily reliant on old. Let me just look at this chapter, this chapter all the way through here. Um, every metaphor, every image, every quotation in from at least verse four, and I would argue from the beginning of chapter one, I think from the beginning of one down, this thing's Jewish. And the comparison here is that some Israelites were saved and some were not. That's the thing that the Israelites, the Jews, would not accept. The way Paul addresses it in Romans is to tell them, now wait a minute, by prophecy, two things were true. By prophecy, some some Jews would always have fallen. A remnant, Isaiah said, a remnant would be saved. And if it weren't for the fact that God cut his, his judgment short, we should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Romans 9. You Jews need to appreciate. There's nothing inherently special with you. You can be lost. That, that's Paul's argument. He's the potter, you're the clay, and the fact that he used you just like he used Pharaoh doesn't mean you're saved. You can be lost just like Pharaoh. That's that's that, that that's the dent he's got to make in their brain. You assume you're saved. Okay? Also hold in mind the ancient's mentality. You see it as far back as Job. When calamity hits you, it is a sign that God is displeased with you. This man must have sinned, Job. Job, just confess your sin before God. This will stop. And Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. Certainly not anything to deserve this. And Job was right. He hadn't. The disciples in John chapter 9, they come across this man that was born blind, and they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? 
the mentality of, of not just the Jews. A lot of the ancients held that mentality, but it's certainly present among the Jews. I want you to understand here what's going on in, 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 uh, in the book of 1 Peter. A fiery trial has come upon these people. What would be the thought from a people that think, Luke 13, do you think the men who died when the tower of Siloam fell were sinners above the rest? The reason Jesus asked that question is because, yeah, they did. Oh, man, that tower fell and killed those men. They must have been sinners. If that's your heritage, if that's your understanding from Job forward, that's your understanding. And, and by the way, they're not without cause. What, what did their covenant tell them? Their covenant told them, if you, if you, when you come into the land, if you're faithful, I'll save you. I'll feed you. None of the diseases of Egypt will come upon you. But God said, if you fall away from me, if when you get in the land, you forsake me, what's going to happen to you? I'll take your land. I'll make you sick. I'll make your crops fail. I will do all of those things. And eventually I will drive you out of that land by other nations. That's what the Jews thought. We're saved. We're the people of God. And anytime calamity comes upon us, it's a sign of God's displeasure. So Peter says in chapter 4, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. The Jewish mentality coming out of the Old Testament covenant, their presumption would have been that when calamity strikes, God is displeased. Peter says, no, that's not true. This has all been according to prophecy. They who have stumbled are destined to stumble. It's the same argument Paul is making. A remnant will be saved. We are no different than anybody else. If God's judgment was not restrained, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Only a remnant will be saved. The fiery trials come upon you and you think you've stumbled. You think you're the one. You're looking back to your countrymen thinking they're the ones that are right now. We're the ones that are wrong. But no, you're the ones who have made the true choice. Yep, he called the Gentiles out of darkness. That idea of darkness is found in 1 John chapter 2 about the darkness, this present darkness is passing away. The true light is beginning to shine. Paul refers to the present darkness in Ephesians chapter 6. Not Gentile. The true light of 1 John 2 is shining through. The darkness, the current darkness is beginning to pass away. Not Gentile. Paul uses very similar phraseology. Of all the bondage and the corruption and the slavery. Not far from darkness. I think he's talking about the legacy of, 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 of Judaism. That's what he's talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. At least, at least possible, that's what Peter's referencing here. He's called you out of what is darkness into light. I'm not certain, and this is why I say this. I'm not certain that verse 10 isn't effectively doing the same thing. It has not always been the case that every seed of Abraham 
or even before Abraham. There was no special relationship. There's a sense in which every person was was once not a people of God. And just as you look to the Gentiles and you have that thought about the Gentiles, because you could take this language and apply it to the Gentiles today and you'd be absolutely right. And that's what Paul does in Romans 9. He says the Gentiles, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he goes on and he says there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. I think that's what Peter's trying to get the Jews to appreciate here. Now, he may be referencing the Gentiles in verse 10, but I think what he's trying to get them to see is, even if he's referencing the Gentiles in verse 10, I believe his focus is still on the Jewish mentality. Simply because you have fallen, or it appears that you have fallen, simply because this calamity is here, you need to understand, no, that's not the metric, that's not the standard that God applies to those who he's going to call his own people. So I think there's more than going on, more going on here than just that. Another reason I think it is we start to get, get, get to a close. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He didn't change people. He didn't change audiences, okay? The sojourners and the exiles. Again, exiles from what? What have you been, the Jew, the Gentiles, when they become Christians, do not become exiles. Who is it that has actually been exiled from something? Jews were. Oh, you're a Christian? Get out. At least at this point, because the Roman persecution has not reached its height. You, you, you don't have the same enforcement, perhaps, of Caesar worship that you'll have in subsequent decades. You, you don't have the same uh, removal from um, uh, some of the trade guilds that maybe you'll have later in, in time. At this point, when Peter writes 1 Peter, Christianity pretty, pretty much has freedom of religion throughout the Roman Empire. You know, when, when, when Christianity comes into Corinth and, and, and the trouble rises up in Corinth, the proconsul of Corinth says, wait, wait a minute, this is... Why are we talking about this? This is a matter for your law. All right, Christians, Gentiles, are not exiled from Rome at this point. Who's exiled from something? The audience of this book, the elect exiles of the dispersion. I know in verse 11, I, I'm fully convinced in verse 11 that he's talking to the Jews. Also, he says, you need to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against the war. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. If he's talking exclusively to Gentiles here, shouldn't that say among the other Gentiles? Shouldn't there be some acknowledgement that you yourselves are Gentiles? Doesn't. To the sojourners and the exiles, he can just say, you live this way, let the Gentiles live that way. That makes a lot more sense to me if he's talking to Jews. The sojourners and the exiles, I believe, are Jewish. I think the chosen race, the royal priesthood, all of that is Jewish. And it stands in contrast to those that stumble and disobey the word. According to the prophecies of Isaiah, the builders rejected the cornerstone. That's Jewish. And I'm convinced verse 11 is Jewish. Verse 12 doesn't seem to indicate that these are Gentiles living among other, other Gentiles. 
It just says, you exiles don't live like the Gentiles. Oh, this just makes a lot of sense to me if it's all Jewish. That's why I think this may be looking back. As we close, let me say one more time. I can't disprove that that verse is talking about the Gentiles because every word of it you can find elsewhere in your Bible referring or at least to include Gentiles. All right? This argument that I'm making or this, this, I say argument, I'm not even making the argument. Like I said, way back when, 35 minutes ago, this is Tuesday, and what I'm telling you about this, this phrase right now is my Tuesday version of it. Wednesday, I might have a different answer for you. Okay, probably not quite that bad because I've been on this. I've been on this position a while, but this is one that somebody could talk me off of. There's sometimes when I tell you something I, that I believe that it's going to take a lot to talk me off a of position. This is not necessarily one that's going to take me a lot, but I still think it's Jewish or at least it's inclusive of the Jews. But the argument that's going to be, that the argument that's being made here is, just as is, as, as is there in Romans 9 and 10, there is equality among Jew and Gentile. Some Jews will be saved, most will be lost. Some Gentiles will be saved, most will be lost. And you Jews shouldn't think that odd. It was always and only going to be a remnant saved by grace. That's true of you, and that's true of the Gentiles. And so if you're a Jew reading 1 Peter, the fact that you are a sojourner now, that you are an exile from your people, that you have been so heavily persecuted perhaps in and around Jerusalem that you had to flee back to, flee back to your homeland to get away from the persecution of your own people or from your own people. You had to flee to get rid of that. Boy, that just, you shouldn't be shocked by that at all. It's normal and it's expected. And what I think he's saying in verse number 10 is you need to understand, just like the rest of the world, at one time you walked in darkness. At one time, not even you were the people of God. The fact that you feel like you're back in that condition now shouldn't be strange to you, but you need to understand you've come out of that dying system of Judaism. And that's what I think the darkness there is. You're in the marvelous light, the true grace stand firm. Therefore you once did not have that blessing. You once were not the people. And now you are. I think that's what he's talking about. I'll stop there. You are more than free to disagree with me over the, everything I said over the last 30 minutes, all right? I just, when I get you in a position like that, I want you to understand you're not going to upset me or offend me at all if you do, because I frankly don't know that many people that agree with me on this, uh, on this, particular, uh, on this particular take on these verses, but that's mine. And I offer it to you freely. And as I say always in our studies, I'm not after your agreement, I'm after your understanding. So if you at least understand where I'm coming from, even if you disagree with me, that'll be good enough. And I do believe I just got a notification that Truth Tuesday is starting. So I think I am already over my time. And we will see you back here um, tomorrow for a Connect. Uh, don't forget, or for, from the deep end. And don't forget Jonathan Exum with us tonight at 7 o'clock for the uh, Connect online meeting. Been my pleasure to be with you today. Um, and we've got several more shows coming up throughout the day today. 
I will say good day to you now and uh, see you back here this evening. Go out and make your day a great one for God. Have a good day, everybody.